But let's come now to Matthew 27, um, and we're jumping into the events that took place in the final hours leading up to Christ's death on the cross. If you've uh, heard me preach here over the last several years, you'll probably know that we've been working through Matthew's Gospel for a long time at Christ Church, and we're nearing the end of it. So I just really thought I'd bring this message that we, uh, we, we benefited from at Christ Church recently. Uh, Jesus has been handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, uh, because the religious leaders... Uh, who have conducted their sort of sh- sort of sham of a trial, really, already, don't have the authority to put Jesus to death. And so they've, they've brought Jesus before the Roman governor, uh, because, of course, Jerusalem is under Roman control. And so they need the Romans to, uh, to see things through to the end and to put Jesus to death. Uh, and we've got three points, three points that we're going to look at, and they are these. Pilots... Plan B, that's the first point, Pilate's plan B. Secondly, the leaders and the crowd. And then thirdly, Pilate's failed self-justification. He tries to justify his behaviour. I'm sure you saw that in the passage at the end, but he he patently fails at it. He's, uh, well, we know this, don't we? He's he's memorialised forever in the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, we, we say, don't we? That is the legacy of Pilate. So it is a failed self-justification. Well, let's come to the first point then. Uh, Pilate's plan B. Pilate doesn't think that Jesus is guilty, but he's worried how the crowd will react if he releases Jesus. Verse 13, he says to Jesus, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? And he's essentially saying to Jesus this, he's saying, come on, Jesus, be reasonable. Defend yourself. I can see you're innocent and you could dismantle these claims that they're bringing against you in an instant. If you could just say something, defend yourself against these ridiculous accusations, then I can set you free and I won't get in trouble with the crowds. You see, that's Pilate's problem. He he doesn't want to condemn an innocent man, but he also wants to keep the people on side. They're the two things that he's trying to do. And so the first plan he devises, uh, plan A, uh, you can read about it in Luke 23, is that he sends Jesus over to Herod. He's like, ah, Herod, Herod's in, in town. Herod, who's governor of Galilee. And he's like, oh, he hears how Jesus was actually, uh, you know, raised in Galilee, born in Galilee. So you think, well, I could pass the buck. Let's let Herod deal with it. Uh, but it doesn't work out. Herod basically wants to, Jesus, wants to see Jesus perform uh, like some kind of performing monkey. And then when he doesn't, when he fails to live up it, to his expectations, he, he takes out his frustrations on him and sends him right back. And so Pilate's back in the same place. He's back to square one. And because he hasn't changed, he's still worried about what the crowd thinks. He has, well, he thinks he has to come up with another plan. His plan B, another uh, sort of way of getting himself out of this difficult situation that he finds himself in. And Matthew sets it up in verse 15. It says there, Now it was the governor's custom at the feast or the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Now the feast or the festival being referred to there is the Jewish Passover. And somehow, think about this, an annual tradition had developed whereby the Romans recognised and, if you like, even honoured this Jewish festival by releasing to them a prisoner of their choice. It's kind of bizarre uh, 
You know, you've probably heard this story many times, but when you stop to think about it, it's very odd. Gives you a little insight into how far the people of God have strayed from his ways, that this, this festival to honour the Lord should be honoured by allowing crimes to go unpunished and allowing guilty men to walk free. Calvin writes, since nothing ought to be attempted but by the rule of God's word, all that men gain by methods of worshipping God which have been rashly contrived by themselves, and that seems to be what's going on here, uh, all that men gain by these methods is that under the pretense of honouring, they often throw dishonour upon him. But there you go, that's the situation. Uh, The custom exists and Pilate thinks, well, this is my opportunity. I can take advantage of this. And so verse 16, at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, there's a few children amongst us. I don't know if we're familiar with this word, notorious. Uh, it means I mean, you don't want to be notorious. Okay, Being notorious is not a good thing. It means famous for bad reasons. It means you've got a reputation for the wrong reasons. Everyone knows Barabbas. He's famous. But it's because he's got a bad reputation. They know how bad he is. You get some extra details from the other gospel writers. So uh, John calls him a revolutionary. Uh, Luke says he'd been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. So he's a he's a bad egg. And that's Barabbas. You've got Barabbas and then you've got Jesus. Why is Pilate picked Barabbas? pretty obvious, isn't it? He's picked someone from the very dregs of the system. He's picked somebody who everybody knows and everybody knows is a nasty piece of work. He's a violent and a dangerous man. Someone, frankly, that you don't want walking the streets. What's he up to? Well, he's trying to set things up to guarantee that they go his Way. There is no way the crowds are going to choose Barabbas. I mean, they'd have to be crazy to choose this murdering, rebellious nutcase. That's the idea, isn't it? This is his plan B. Stack the odds completely in, I was going to say Jesus' favour, but in his own favour. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to manipulate the crowds to choose Jesus so that he, so that Pilate, can set him free and be popular and have the crowds love him. He thinks he's being clever. After all, he could see through what the religious leaders were up to. If you look back at verse 18, it says, Pilate knew it was out of envy that they'd handed Jesus over. He understood the religious leaders. He knew they were jealous. They had no real evidence against Jesus. He was clearly innocent. But he realised that they couldn't cope. They, 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 they couldn't cope with the threat that he was to their authority and leadership of God's people. And then this remarkable moment. In the providence of God, God gets a message right into the thick of this intense situation, into the heart of proceedings. Verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat. You can imagine him there. He's dressed up in his finery. He's ready to pronounce judgment. And then right at that moment, 
in comes this message. His wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. Why? For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. God sends Pilate's wife a dream to confirm what Pilate suspects. And the message is really clear, isn't it? Jesus is innocent. He does not deserve to be condemned. I think one of the things I found quite striking in working through uh, Matthew's gospel, these final chapters, is how many times the Lord witnesses in various ways out of the mouths of various different people to the innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really very, very clear. And this is just another of those moments. Well, Pilate has this message, but he doesn't listen, or at least he doesn't have the courage to do what he knows should be done. Far from letting Jesus go, he ends up being the one to sentence him to death by crucifixion. Well, what can we learn from this? Pilate's problem is that he's hoping, he's trying, he's attempting to satisfy both his own conscience and the people. He knows that Jesus is innocent. There's no doubt about that in his mind. And that being the case, it's 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 very clear. It's absolutely plain what he should do. He should acquit Jesus immediately. He should publicly clear him of all charges. And if anything, he should then uh, condemn the religious leaders for trying to bring this false accusation against him. That's what he should do. But instead, he plays games. Because he has this idea that he can somehow satisfy his own conscience and keep the people happy. But it's a bit like, doesn't it remind you of um, you know, the way Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. You, you can't do both. If you're, if you're concerned with pleasing man, then you will end up overriding your conscience. And we're naive if we think that we can please the world and our consciences. If we, if we set out on that task, if we think that we can do that, if we aim to do that, ultimately it is the world that ends up winning out. Of course, what that doesn't mean is that we should just, if you like, go with our gut on everything. You know, I was just going with my conscience. It was a conscience issue. I had to go with what felt right for me. I mean, if you think about that, that actually sounds quite worldly, doesn't it? You know, it's not just a go with your gut idea. No, we, ha- we need to have informed consciences. Consciences informed by the word of God. But we're not talking about, yeah, we're not talking about some biblical rubber stamp on the world's motto of being true to yourself. That's not what's going on here. It's very plain, isn't it? It's very clear. Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows it. That's the conscience issue. <laughs> It's not something vague at all. Luke 23, verse 22, Pilate says himself, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. That's really clear. But he's consumed by, he is trapped by the fear of what the crowds think of him. So what we learn from Pilate is straightforward. We learn from Pilate the danger of fearing man instead of trusting God. And then we saw that, didn't we, earlier on in Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare, a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see, it's dangerous, isn't it? It's hard to turn away from what people think. 
But there is a promise that comes in that proverb. The one who trusts in the Lord is safe. So though it might frighten us, it might be uh, a daunting prospect. Uh, and you know, We might be fearful of what people think. If we fear the Lord, then we know that the future is ultimately safe. Well, let's come to our second point, the leaders and the crowd, verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. And that really is the turning point in the story. It's the twist in the tale. You know, it's all heading very clearly in one direction with Pilate's plan and then the total curveball moment. We're probably very familiar with this, aren't we? It's a very, very well-known story, and yet we shouldn't allow it to pass over us without some level of kind of a gut punch of horror. The chief priests and the elders, the religious leaders, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. Notice how determined the religious leaders are to see this through. They've been plotting Jesus' death, as you're probably aware, going way back. But even now, even when it's going to require a dangerous criminal to be released back onto the streets for their plan to go ahead, even then they don't drop it. They remain fixed and resolved and determined to see it through. So what do they do? They, They whip up the crowd to demand the release of a convicted revolutionary murderer rather than allow Jesus the innocent, the one we just sung off, the capital I, innocent, to walk free. I'm not sure there is really much we can say that redeems their actions here. They are so bent on destroying the Son of God that they'd rather see a murderer back on the streets. That's, if you like, a necessary evil for the greater good for them. And these are men who are supposed to be leading God's people into truth. I don't know how you engage with this passage when you read of it, when, when you read it, but part of us has got to stop and just sort of say, like, why? Why? Why do they do this? What brings them? to this wretched abuse of power. But I think actually if you read through Matthew's Gospel, it's it's very clear why. It's the same thing that's troubled them since Jesus began his ministry. Jesus is a threat to their authority. Pilate gets it right in verse verse 18. We've already read it. He knew that it was envy that led them to hand Jesus over. They are envious. They are jealous. You see, at some level, they, they recognized his authority. You know, the authority which has been manifest for all to see. His authority over nature, calming the storm. Over sickness, even over death. As he has healed thousands of people and, of course, raised, for example, Lazarus. The authority in his teaching. The way that people would gather Huge, great crowds and, and chase after him. And so to the point where they forget about eating. The point where they, 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 they won't go home and they haven't thought about where they're going to sleep for the night. Because they cannot leave this man. And they hang on his every word. And they are jealous. They want what belongs 
to him. And they realize that if they don't deal with Jesus, then it's going to be their authority which suffers. And the truth is that they were happy with things the way they were. They were happy with the status quo. Even though the Romans were in charge. Which again is is odd, actually, when you think about it. I mean, you can tell this because if they really believed the picture that they paint to Pilate, that Jesus was a revolutionary, that he was going to lead a rebellion to overthrow the Romans, then why aren't they backing him? Because they're happy. They're happy with the way things are. They get their positions of authority. They get to keep their positions of authority. They get their comfortable lives. They get the respect of the people. And they get the privileges that come with their roles. And actually, the Romans don't have any trouble with them. They've got no issue with them so long as they're not causing any difficulty. The heart of man hasn't changed in 2,000 years. The heart of man is still enticed by the trappings of power. And those in leadership still to this day face that battle of doing the right thing and acting on principle versus the threat of losing the comfortable position that they find themselves in. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised I could give you plenty of examples. I don't need to. They're in your minds already. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when we hear about corruption and cover-up in institutions, even the very institutions which have been established to work in the interests of the public. You know, I think it's just one of the most fascinating passages of Scripture on the insight it gives us into the heart of humanity. Let's come on to the reaction of the crowds, because there's a great deal we can learn from them. Verse 21. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. It's one of those moments which we look upon and we struggle to understand. Why? Why do they, you know, how is it that they're convinced? Why do they cry out for Barabbas? Reminds me a little bit of that question that, that gets asked periodically, that's filled the minds and books of historians and philosophers ever since the Second World War. How did it come to pass that ordinary, decent citizens, business owners, factory workers, doctors, accountants, men, women, old, young, came to support the cause of Hitler and the Nazi party in the 1930s and 40s? Not just support but even join the forces and and lend their hand to the persecution and destruction of Jews and others. What, What was going on? What was going on then? What's going on here? I mean, just let's think about this a little bit further. At least some of those present on this occasion, in this crowd, crying out, release Barabbas, were likely amongst those who days before were crying out, Hosanna! And laying out palm branches as Jesus rode into the city. Many of them would have benefited from the ministry of Christ. Maybe by being healed personally from some ongoing illness that had plagued them for months or even years. Or perhaps by having a family member or friend brought back to health. Thousands had had their hunger filled, satisfied by him out in the wilderness from nothing but a few loaves and some fish. 
Many, many had seen him bring Lazarus out of the tomb. And they had listened to and they had hung upon his every word. And they had marveled at the authority with which he spoke. Which just makes us ask the question all the more, why? Why do they want Barabbas released instead of Jesus? Well, in my preparation, I came across this comment from a commentator, which I thought was just fascinating. Writes this, Matthew's intention is to show that the death of Christ was so eagerly demanded by the voice of the people, not because he was universally hated, but because the greater part of them, ambitiously desirous to follow the inclination of their rulers, threw aside all regard to justice and might be said to have sold and enslaved their tongue to the wicked conspiracy of a few. Ambitiously desirous to follow the inclination of their rulers, they threw aside all regard to justice. You know, we're a people who want to be led. Again, Proverbs 29 that we read earlier. Many desire a ruler's favour. That's what the scriptures tell us. Many desire a ruler's favour, but a person receives justice from the Lord. We're a people who want to be led. And the danger is that in that desire, we, we take out our brains, as it were, and we fail to think and we allow ourselves to be swept along. The thing is, it's, it's, it's hard to stand against the crowd. It takes courage to stand alone. But history has witnessed that as great crowds, pretty well entire nations of people, have shown that they can suppress principles and convictions and what they know in their hearts to be right and wrong without even realising that they're doing so. When Pilate asks them in verse 23, why? What crime has he committed? They don't give an answer. They just cry out all the louder, crucify him. Another commentator writes this, how carefully we ought to guard against headlong rashness in our judgments. For when men refuse to make inquiry and venture to decide in this or the other matter, according to their own fancy, blind impulse must at length carry them to rage. And this is the righteous vengeance of God with which he visits the pride of those who do not deign to take the trouble of distinguishing between right and wrong. And he concludes, the Jews thought that in slaying Christ, they were performing a service acceptable to God. Well, of course they did. That's what their leaders were telling them. So, I have a question for us, which is, do we have a biblical understanding of the world in which we are living? Do we see ourselves, as Paul sees us, as citizens of heaven? Do we live as though what Jesus says of us is true? That we are in the world, but not of the world? 
We're living in a society where, to take up the words of Isaiah, our leaders, and this is, this is a fact, they, they do, they, they collectively call evil good and good evil. Here's the example. Almost without exception, they celebrate the so-called progress scene in the freedom and ease with which abortion is carried out in this country. That is apparently progress. And you find me a politician who doesn't support it. There are one or two, but there aren't many. Galatians chapter 1, Paul describes the time in which we're living as this present evil age. Present age is, is an evil age because sin has such a grip on, on our lives and on the institutions of our society. And because Satan has power, 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. Jesus describes this world as darkness that hates the light. It's all, it's all very dark, isn't it? It's all very bleak. But the Christian has the word of God and the Christian has the spirit to enable us to discern what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. Paul writes, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, what is, sorry, the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Or Colossians 1 verse 13, there's good news here, isn't there? God has delivered us. He's delivered the Christian from the dominion of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But we must engage our brains. We must think. We must be transformed, in Paul's words, by the renewing of our minds, knowing, remembering that we live in an evil age. If not, how will we know when we are being swept along unthinkingly into supporting evil while thinking that we're doing service to God now? I'm not saying that everything that every nation and every leader in every nation does is only evil all of the time. In the grace of God, there is much good done. But the question I think this passage demands that we ask is, are we thinking? Well, as we read on, we see how sobering the darkness of the crowd is. When they say they want Barabbas released, Pilate thinks, well, and maybe there's, maybe there's something I don't know about. Maybe there's, maybe they really like Barabbas. Maybe there's some story here. Now, I don't know about it, but that's what led them to wanting Barabbas released, rather, rather than that they actually hated Jesus. And so verse 22, he asked them, sorry, domain 22? No, uh, lost my place. Oh, it is 22. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Shall I release him? I, I could release him too. You know, greater honour to your festival. But no, end of verse 22. They all, all answered, crucify him, kill him, execute him in the most scandalous and humiliating way possible. Make it so that his followers are ashamed that he was their master. 
They're, they're like sharks who've scented human blood. They want the kill. And all that, despite, as verse 23 makes clear, there being no grounds on which to condemn him. Why, Pilate asks, what has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more. Well, if you're not a believer, I wonder if you've ever thought along these lines. <clears throat> I would consider, I would, I would consider becoming a Christian if it weren't for the inconsistency of Christians. I wonder if you've heard that, if you, if you are a Christian, I wonder if you've heard that out of the mouths of friends and family members who aren't believers. People who say, I just can't, I, I hate the hypocrisy of people who say that they're followers of Christ. You know, they're all holier than thou. But I've seen the way they treat their kids, or I've seen the way they spend their money, or, and, you know, tragically, there's no shortage of examples of this, but I've seen the way their leaders have taken advantage of and abused the people, even the children, under their care. It's a line that gets levelled at Christians, isn't it? And it seems like a fair enough line, but then, if that is you, consider this. There once was a man who was entirely consistent. A perfect man, against whom not a single true charge could be levelled. Yet he was hated and he was put to death. Christians aren't perfect, that's kind of the point. To be a Christian is to know that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. So don't be put off by the inconsistent lives of people you know who are Christians. Don't, don't use them as an excuse to keep Christ at arm's length. But come and join the band of broken sinners. That's what the church is, isn't it? Those who know that we need a saviour. Well, that brings us to our third point. Pilate's failed self-justification. Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood he said it is your responsibility look at his reasoning firstly there was in his mind no no point in fighting any longer he sees that he's getting nowhere his little plan to manipulate the crowd into doing what he wanted it's not working so there's no point Secondly, he convinces himself that actually, and get this, more harm will be done. More harm will be done if he releases Jesus. That's craziness, isn't it? Because, of course, this riot is beginning to break out. Well, aren't these just the classic ways of rationalising and defending sin? You know, I would stand up and say something or do something about that evil, that injustice in the workplace or or standing up for someone, being picked on, or whatever. You don't understand the situation. You know, it's so dark that, you know, if I were to speak out, if I were to do something, well, it's it's not going to achieve anything. So I may as well not bother. There's no point. Besides, if I do say something, it might actually do more harm than good, because, well, I might lose my job, for example. And then what good can I do? No, 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 it's better for me to continue in my job where I can have a positive influence, conveniently forgetting that I won't have a positive influence because I've convinced myself it won't achieve anything, than to be fired and of no use at all. Again, it's just a fascinating insight. Dissects our hearts, doesn't it? 
And then we see <clears throat> Pilate's plan, which you could summarise as do it, but disown it. You know, do it, but pretend you're not doing it. I'll go ahead and condemn Jesus. I'll, I'll send him to his death, even though I know that he's an innocent man, but I'm innocent. And it's on your heads. And then to symbolise his innocence, he takes this basin, he washes his hands. I have washed myself clean of this sin. That What came to mind when I was thinking about this is like when uh, kids say, although actually adults do it too, but no offence, but... And then they proceed to say something very offensive, like you're ugly, or you're rubbish at football, or this food is disgusting. That's sometimes what my children say. And you're like, that is offensive, actually. You know, a life lesson for you. Saying no offence does not mean that what you're about to say won't cause offence. It depends how offensive what you're about to say is, doesn't it? But that's kind of Pilate's mentality here. I'll do it, but it's you doing it. Well, no, because actually if you didn't do it, Pilate, then it wouldn't be done. Spurgeon writes, Ah, Pilate, you need something stronger than water to wash the blood of that just person off your hands. It doesn't make sense, does it? We cannot do what we know to be sin and think that we are excused because we're doing it against our will. Our duty as believers is to do the right thing, even if it means that we will be unpopular and persecuted for doing so. Well, in the throes of bloodlust, look lastly at the crowd's response. Verse 25, all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The crowd is so convinced that they are right, that these words, they just sort of, you can imagine, they just tumble out of their mouths without thought of what they're really saying. The truth is, they can't take Pilate's sin away from him. He bears that responsibility for himself. But what they can do and what they do do is they condemn themselves. They demonstrate, they even, they exult in, they, as it were, they celebrate that they are fully complicit in Pilate's decision. And the passage ends on a note of darkness and devastation. And yet, even here, in these final words and actions of Pilate and the crowd, we see the glimmers of gospel hope. Because the passage ends how? Well, it ends with Christ being handed over to be crucified. Water wasn't sufficient to wash Pilate's hands of his actions, but Christ's blood shed on that cross to which he was heading in that verse 26. It is. It is sufficient. It is enough to wash not just our hands, but our very souls from our sin and darkness. And whilst the crowd, they, they say that they would like to take this on themselves, take it away from Pilate, but they can't do that. They, you know, they, they couldn't bear Pilate's sin upon themselves. Christ the innocent, the one who in this very passage has been declared to be righteous because he had none of his own sin to answer for, he could. He was able to bear the sin of wretched sinners like us. And he did, 
And he chose to do so by going willingly to the cross to die in our place. Jesus' crucifixion, the fate that Pilate assigns to Christ, is the hope of the gospel. Because the blood that Christ sheds is what is needed to cleanse us from our sin. Let's pray.